Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q and Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Please like and share our podcast and give us any constructive feedback. The Herald, Tuesday the 6th of July 2021. News. Brexit hit to Scottish exports. Scottish Chambers of Commerce and Fraser of Allender survey reveals. This article is by Ian McConnell. Scottish companies have reported a rise in domestic sales and confidence for the second quarter, with an unleashing of pent-up demand as coronavirus lockdown measures were eased, but exports dropped following the UK's European single market exit. The mixed picture, which also includes signs of major challenges on the employment front, is revealed today in the latest survey of business activity from Scottish Chambers of Commerce and the University of Strathclyde's Fraser of Allender Institute. Laying out the broadly based export troubles, Scottish Chambers says COVID-19 disruption and Brexit fallout has resulted in trading difficulties for businesses in services, manufacturing and retail, as evidenced by falls in export sales and orders across these sectors. The UK left the single market on December the 31st last year, at the end of a transition period which followed the country's technical Brexit on January the 31st, 2020. Mary Spowage, director of Fraser of Allender, said the dislocation in global trade was significant due to the pandemic. However, we also know that the end of the EU transition period has caused significant issues for manufacturers and others trying to rebuild these supply chains since the start of this year. This chimes with today's survey results, which show significant negative impacts on exports. Ms Spowage also highlighted the inevitability of calls from some sectors for much more extensive business support, given the recent announcement of a delay to fuller easing of restrictions. She added, Practical policy measures to help these businesses survive through the winter are likely to be needed. Scottish Chamber highlights the fact that all sectors covered by the survey have reported substantial rises in confidence and domestic sales owing to the easing of general and domestic travel lockdown restrictions. It says most results are positive for the first time in over a year, albeit from historically low bases. The survey covers the construction, financial and business services, manufacturing, retail and wholesale and tourism sectors. However, while noting all sectors have positive expectations for the third quarter, likely boosted by anticipated further easing of coronavirus-related restrictions, Scottish Chambers highlights companies' caution when it comes to investment and staffing. Flagging additional challenges with the planned ending of the UK government's coronavirus job retention scheme in September, Scottish Chambers says... While firms are optimistic about sales revenue, they are more cautious around investment and staff levels with most firms envisaging no change to these in the coming quarter. 
It sounds this note of caution even though the employment picture improved in the second quarter and a net balance of companies across sectors surveyed project a rise in staffing in the coming three months. Scottish Chambers focuses on the fact, however, that a majority of companies across sectors forecast no or little change in employment levels in the third quarter. The business organisation says of the second quarter picture, most sectors saw a slight increase in employment, apart from retail which saw no change over the quarter. Mulling projections, it adds, most firms across all sectors expect little change in quarter three, which would result in sluggish jobs growth, with further challenges expected as the furlough scheme is withdrawn. And Scottish Chamber's President, Tim Allen, characterised recovery as a marathon as opposed to a sprint. Mr Allen also highlights major changes for towns and city centres as more people work from home and more flexibility on an ongoing basis. And he underlined difficulties facing tourism and international travel from confusing and burdensome regulations and also a tightening of skilled labour supply, underlining a need for continued financial support for this sector. Mr Allen said the success of the vaccine rollout has enabled the easing of restrictions and the gradual reopening of the economy, unleashing pent-up demand in the economy. This has allowed some sectors to rebound more quickly than others. However, the route to economic recovery will be a marathon, not a sprint. It's clear that concerns remain around the ongoing impact of COVID-19, as businesses grapple with huge uncertainties over what the economy will look like post-pandemic. Towns and city centres face new challenges as more people work from home and more flexibly, impacting on footfall and changes to consumer behaviour. The needs of employers and employees alike need to be finely balanced as we shape the recovery of our city centres, which will impact on a wide range of sectors and supply chains. He added, equally sectors such as tourism and international travel, which continue to operate with severe restrictions, are having to adjust to increased domestic demand, a simultaneous fall in international travel and a tightening supply of skilled labour. The sector needs continued financial support and greater clarity on when confusing and burdensome travel regulations will end, allowing greater numbers of international visitors to return. Ms Bowage observed the recovery in the Scottish economy is definitely underway and highlighted headway on the back of the incredible progress of the vaccine programme. However, she added, recent announcements of the delay to the restrictions roadmap will lead to calls from some sectors that there should be much more extensive business support to get them through to a position where they can properly operate. Scottish Chambers also flags building worries among companies about inflation. It says all sectors have recorded increases in concern over inflation, which may escalate as more consumers spend savings accumulated over the last 16 months and create uncertainty for businesses in terms of their costs and prices. Looking ahead, Ms Spowage said, with the progress of second doses being well on track, Policymakers are starting to signal a change in the months to come in the way they manage any future outbreaks. Businesses who have been under the highest level of restrictions over the last 18 months will no doubt welcome this shift when it is safe to do so. This article is by Ian McConnell.
The Herald, Wednesday the 7th of July 2021. News. Bivodal drug treatment to be extended after successful prison pilot. This article is by David Ball. A drug administered once a month to treat addiction patients in prison is set to be extended into the wider community following a successful trial. A £1.9 million pilot was launched last year, allowing patients in prison on prescribed opiate substitution treatment, OST, most notably methadone, to switch to long-acting drug, Bovidol. Patients can receive Bovidol every 28 days instead of having to be given medication daily, initially trial to cut down contact time between staff and patients and mitigate the impacts of potential staff shortages. A new report by the Scottish Government's Health and Social Care Analysis Hub, HSCA, found high levels of satisfaction about Bovidol were reported by almost all patients and healthcare staff interviewed as well as the medicine having positive impacts on patients' health and well-being, including a reduction in drug-seeking behaviour. But the report warns that despite the overwhelmingly positive findings, the treatment should not be seen as a panacea for the many challenges facing opioid-dependent people in prison. The study also found it was common for patients to struggle with withdrawal symptoms during the changeover from methadone to bovidol, particularly those with a treatment history of higher doses of methadone. It adds, from a mental health perspective, Staff noted that some patients struggled with the clarity that Bivodil provides to varying degrees. Mostly, this was the result of people having to cope with past traumas that they were now more aware of. The effects of these varied, but in one case, the effect was particularly severe and the patient attempted suicide. Drugs Policy Minister Angela Constance said this report shows very encouraging feedback on the use of Bovidal and I have already announced the allocation of £4 million for the current financial year so this treatment option can be made available more widely in prisons and in the wider community. During this pilot, this opioid substitute resulted in positive changes in people's emotional well-being, leading to positive lifestyle changes, such as people re-engaging with purposeful activities. This can enhance recovery by relieving anxiety, reducing stress and increasing social interactions, while also fostering feelings of hope and optimism. The report also says the medicine appears to alleviate cravings and reduce drug-seeking behaviour. She added, this pilot has been a good experience for almost everyone involved. Support continuity of care while reducing the need for daily contact and reducing pressure on our frontline prison officers and NHS staff. Of course, we all know a high proportion of those leaving or about to leave prison will require support for their recovery from problem drug use. And we are allocating £100 million over the next five years to improve and increase residential rehabilitation places to support recovery and to reduce the pressure on local services. National Prisons Pharmacy Advisor for Healthcare Improvement Scotland, Tom Byrne, added... We were delighted that Scottish Government could see the benefits of Bovidal in prisons in terms of treatment choice for patients and clinicians, patient safety and the prison environment. The decision to include Bovidal as a treatment choice has been widely welcomed by patients, clinicians and the Scottish Prison Service. 
Retention of patients in this treatment has been very high, reflecting the improvements in health and quality of life experienced by those for whom this treatment is appropriate. We believe that proposals to extend access to this treatment beyond prisons and to the wider community will be a significant development in supporting delivery of the medicines-assisted treatment standards, patient-centred care and contribute to a reduction in drug-related deaths. This article is by David Ball. Recorded from the Herald on the 7th of July 2021. From the Sports section. Celtic drop interest in £4.5 million Vyskovic move according to ex-Jerry star turned agent. By David Irvin. Celtic's pursuit of defender Mario Vyskovic has gone cold according to a former Rangers star turned agent. The hoops were linked with a £4.5 million move for the Hadjuk split stopper but Craig Moore claims Ange Postacoglu has turned his attention elsewhere. The Celtic boss has already added Jose's Earl Guide to the defence ranks, with rumours suggesting Carl Starfield is on the club's shopping list. It could mean any move for Croatian 19-year-old Vuskovic is off the table. Moore, who starred for Rangers for more than a decade over two spells, said he's been close to the transfer saga but believes Celtic are not seriously considering a move. Vuskovic, who played a starring role for Hadjuk last term, has already reportedly turned down interest from Basel, with Feyenoord also scouting the defender. Moore told the Goal Radio football show, I've been quite close to this one and it's a little bit cold. I mean, I've seen it in the media a lot. Certainly hasn't been coming out from my side or anything like that, but look, Vuskovic is a fantastic player. 39 games in the Croatian top flight. He's 19-year-old, he's had interest from Basel, which he knocked back. He's had interest from Feyenoord. There's a lot of clubs sniffing about, but at this moment in time, I don't think it's something that Celtic are seriously looking at. I think they're looking for a little bit more experience. That article was by David Irvin. Herald Scotland recorded on Wednesday 7th of July 2021. Arts and Entertainments. Alistair Moffat's gripping thriller plus historical novels by Flora Johnston and Wendy Holden. Paperback reviews by Alistair Mabbitt. The night before morning, Alistair Moffat, Berlin, £8.99. The question what if the Nazis had won the Second World War spawned an entire publishing genre, but Moffat shows that there's life in it yet. With London wiped out by an atomic bomb, Normandy veteran David Erskine battles his way through occupied Scotland at the head of his own tiny resistance cell, convinced they can somehow make a difference. Given that their country's future literally depends on their efforts, they act with ingenuity and selfless heroism, but the simple pleasures of heroic action, clever plans, convenient distractions and nick-of-time rescues are undercut by the terrible cost to rural communities where the occupying regime tries to discourage Erskine by killing townsfolk as brutally as possible. And with so many British people taking the side of the invaders, it's hard to know who to trust. Moffat stretches the tension to breaking point in a gripping but dark thriller in which no one's survival is guaranteed. What You Call Free, Flora Johnson, Ringwood, £9.99 the backdrop to Johnson's debut novel is the conflict between Kirk and Covenanters in 17th century Scotland, but it opens with pregnant 18-year-old Jonet Gothskirk in sackcloth shunned for unwittingly falling for a married man. 
To spare her some humiliation, Jonnet's mother sends her to stay with her sister, who Jonnet discovers as a covenanter, and whose neighbour, widow Helen Alexander, frequently aids and harbours their leader, James Rennick. Jonnet is shocked, seeing them as people ensnared by a dangerous cult, one that could get them all arrested. However, when her marriage to a sleazy old merchant is arranged, she's drawn closer to Helen and the Covenanter cause. Once opened, this tale of division, persecution and clandestine gatherings is hard to close again. Johnson ably evoking sympathy for her character's plights in a climate of oppression and jeopardy in which high stakes accompany even the slightest defiance of Kirk and King. The governess, Wendy Holden, Welbeck, £8.99. The Crown may have cornered the market in weaving fiction from the private lives of the royal family, but it still left room for others to explore the story of Croffy, the governess to the young princesses Elizabeth and Margaret, who was ostracised by the royal household for writing about them. One of the characteristics that appealed most to Wendy Holden was Marion Crawford's modernity, and this novel examines how a progressive Edinburgh teacher of the early 1930s, dedicated to improving the lives of slum children, came to terms with teaching two princesses, living among the elite and denying herself a private life until she left her position after 16 years of service. Although the Croffy in this novel is very much in Holden's own creation, she is solidly rooted in Marion Crawford's writings, and the author provides an engaging take on life in the royal household, with some vibrant characterisations of the main players. By Alistair Mabbitt. Recorded from the Herald on the 8th of July 2021. From the sports section, Bowley Bolingoli and Let's Go message as Celtic teammates Edward and Dembele respond. By Mark Hendry. Celtic centre Bowley Bolingoli has shared a Let's Go message ahead of the new season, and his hoop teammates are right behind him. The Belgian defender had seemingly played his final game for the club after his decision to travel to Spain for a day trip last term, breaking protocols and not telling anyone about his jaunt. That controversy forced the hoops into some serious issues and then-manager Neil Lennon revealed he felt the left-back would never play for the club again. However, new head coach Ange Postacoglu has explained already that his players have a clean slate under his management and will have the opportunity to prove their worth. And during the hoops' Wales training camp, Bowley has been working alongside the first team. Posting photos of himself in training gear, he wrote on Instagram, Let's go with fist bump emojis. And teammate Odson Edward wrote Bolly is back with a fire emoji. Karen Moko Dimbelli also shared his thoughts in reply, adding he's back with a love heart emo- eyes emoji. Fans have urged Bolly to redeem himself and push for a place as Greg Taylor is currently the only other top team left back at Parkhead. Aaron Hickey and Josh Doig are both on a transfer shortlist. That article was by Mark Hendry. Herald Scotland recorded on Thursday 8th of July 2021. Arts and Entertainments. Neil Mackey, we cannot allow the culture war to infect the study of great literature in our schools. By Neil Mackey, writer at large. Thirty years ago in another life I taught rich at kids English literature. What else could a poor young writer do? One 16 year old struggled with Animal Farm. I told her, think of the Russian Revolution. It will put the book in context. She stared blankly at me. You've heard of Lenin? I asked. She shrugged. Stalin? No, she said. I thought I'd probe deeper. Hitler? I've heard about him, she said hesitantly. By now I was bewildered, so I asked. You know about the Holocaust, right? No, she replied. Nazis murdered six million Jews, I said. 
She looked horrified. This was 1991. I was breaking news of the Holocaust to a teenager. I spoke to her mother. She told me, we try to keep these things away from her. Too distressing. When I got my student to reread Animal Farm, this unknown past opened up to her and I saw a young woman blossom with knowledge through literature. The kid wasn't stupid, I realised. It was her parents. Whenever there's an assault in literature, I think of that young woman. I thought of her this week when the English department at James Gillespie's High in Edinburgh, one of Scotland's leading state schools, considered scrapping the teaching of texts like Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird and of Mice and Men by John Steinbeck, wonderful Harper, the great Steinbeck. The books are seen as having a dated approach to race. Mockingbird, we're told, has a white saviour narrative. Greater emphasis should be placed, reports said, on material which challenges white western-centric culture. I despise the word woke. It's a nasty little reactionary culture war shorthand deployed to try and stamp out any move to improve decency in the world when it comes to issues like race, misogyny, homophobia and transphobia. So I'll have no truck with the word woke when it comes to discussions around literature because literature, if it's about anything, is about nuance and there's nothing nuanced about the word woke. So let's take a nuanced approach to this debate. Literature, like history, is a window to the past. History tells us what happened in the past. Literature shows us the souls of those who lived there. To remove literature is to kill off a part of the human story. I don't read The Tempest because I love European colonialism in the 1600s. I read The Tempest to understand the spirit of the Renaissance. I don't read Chaucer because I'm a fan of totalitarian religion, but to navigate the medieval mind. I don't read Hemingway because I admire his casual machismo, but because without him, I'll know nothing of the style which affected most Western literature in the 20th century. I don't read Chinua Akebi's Things Fall Apart because I like the hero's grotesque sexism, but because through Akebi I inhabit another human soul, in this case an African wrestler. I don't read Virginia Woolf because I ascribe to her vile anti-Semitism, but because she's a gateway to understanding high culture in the early 20th century. I don't read Don Quixote because absolute monarchy is great, but because I'm interested in the birth of the novel. I don't read Jean Genet because I'm into petty crime, but for a glimpse of gay life when homosexuality meant jail. Above all, I read these works for their ineffable beauty, the magic of language. Books aren't their authors or their characters, books are repositories of human experience. Great literature shows us what we were and what we can become. Art reveals past errors and teases future possibilities. Read Kipling's The Man Who Would Be King, one of literature's greatest adventures, for proof of how far Western society has come in its attitudes and how far we've still to go. Mockingbird may well have a white saviour narrative, but it also turned a generation of young white people into anti-racists. It's culturally and historically of great global significance. In her own brave, beautiful way, Lee charted the growing awareness in white America that the past was monstrous. Without Steinbeck, we lose the poetry and the pain of the working class and works of exquisite sadness like the Red Pony. I've no time for a world which bans beauty. None of this means the current English curriculum is perfect. It needs diversified, but diversity doesn't mean guillotining the past. Add to the curriculum, don't take away. There's no shortage of great writers of colour or great LGBT writers. Just make room for them without destroying the study of other great writers. Read more, not less. Teach Dutchman by Leroy Jones. Teach Jeanette Winterson, Alice Walker, James Baldwin, Alan Hollinghurst. 
Weetamay Brown, Armistead Mopan, Radcliffe Hall, Zadie Smith. I could fill this column with the names of great black and LGBT writers. But to teach these great texts, as we should, we mustn't remove other great texts. Nor can we judge the literary past by today's standards. If we do, rest assured the future will soon judge us. I don't think those who have suggested removing Mockingbird and Steinbeck are bad. Far from it. I believe they're motivated by a desire to do good, to make their teaching more reflective of the world around us. However, in trying to do good, decent people sometimes make bad choices, lose perspective, babies, bathwater and all that. We should also put this row in perspective. One school is having a discussion about its curriculum. Good. Discussion is welcome. We'll never have the changes we need in society unless we debate uncomfortable issues. It's also necessary to debate art. That's what students of literature do every single day. Is this text good? By what standard do we measure beauty? However, literature is the study of the human soul. To me, it's a semi-religious vocation. I want to hear from every writer who's put a voice to the human soul, from the Marquis de Sade to Marcus Aurelius. The culture war has poisoned nearly every tributary in the river of modern life. I would build a dam with my own dead body to prevent the culture war wending its destructive way into the waters of literature. Our columns are a platform for writers to express their opinions. They do not necessarily represent the views of the Herald. By Neil Mackey. Herald Scotland recorded on Thursday 8th of July 2021. Arts and Entertainments. When Sturgeon met Shuggy. FM and Scots author Headline Book Festival by Tom Gordon, Scottish political editor. Nicola Sturgeon is to appear with the prize-winning author of Shuggy Bain at this year's Edinburgh Book Festival. It has been announced. The First Minister, an avid fiction reader, will host an event with Douglas Stewart who won the 2020 Booker for his debut novel about a working-class boy growing up in Scotland with his alcoholic mother. It is understood to be the first live discussion the Glasgow-born author has had about the work, although he will participate remotely, appearing in a live screen while Ms Sturgeon is on stage. Also appearing is the First Minister's Covid advisor, Professor Devi Sridhar, who will present a discussion on the different political choices taken across the UK over the course of the pandemic. A festival regular, Ms Sturgeon is one of several politicians taking part next month. Also appearing are former PM Gordon Brown and his ill-fated successor as Labour leader Ed Miliband. Promoting his book Seven Ways to Change the World, Mr Brown will discuss global health, poverty, inequality, climate change, education, financial instability and nuclear proliferation. Mr Miliband will discuss the need for politics to go big, rather than continue its trend towards infantilisation, lies, stunts and juvenile sloganeering, according to the event guide. This year's festival will take place at Edinburgh College of Art rather than its traditional home of Charlotte Square and will have a hybrid format of live audiences and live streaming. The 250 events include authors Kazuo Ishiguro, Salman Rushdie and 2019 Booker co-winner Bernadine Evaristo with around half of all speakers intending to appear in person at socially distanced events. The festival, which runs from August 14 to 30, is operating a pay-what-you-can scheme for all online events and limited numbers of in-person tickets for selected events will go on sale at midday on Thursday, July 22. Other writers taking part include Ian Rankin, who launches The Dark Remains, his completion of William McIlvanny's final manuscript, Maggie O'Farrell, Alexander McCall-Smith and Val McDermott, who will be in conversation with footballer Pat Nevin. 
Nick Barley, director of the Edinburgh International Book Festival, said, We're incredibly excited to produce our first hybrid festival, with authors and audiences joining us both in person and online. We welcome a mix of Scottish and international voices to discuss their ideas, hopes and dreams, and we aim to explore together how to move onwards and upwards from this devastating pandemic. In our new home at Edinburgh College of Art, we have created three broadcast studios, two of which can accommodate limited audiences. These new facilities enable us to offer author conversations to worldwide audiences and to those closer to home who are unable to join us in person, as well as welcoming a limited in-real-life audience. Meanwhile, the Reading Scotland series, supported by the Scottish Government's Edinburgh Festival Expo Fund, has teamed six Scottish writers with six young Scottish filmmakers to create short films based on their novels. Scotland's Culture Minister Jenny Gilruth said, This year's book festival offers excellent online and in-person experiences that will connect audiences all over the world to an impressive lineup of writers and events. By Tom Gordon you're listening to the Herald Scotland, a Cune Review recording service podcast brought to you by our team of volunteers currently from their homes across the UK. Whether you're listening via the BWBF online players, the telephone app or our brand new Alexa skill, please phone us on 0141 772 3976 to feedback on what you want us to provide and improve upon. Remember to follow our Instagram, Facebook and Twitter at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Herald Scotland recorded on Friday 9th of July 2021. Arts and Entertainments. Live Review. East Nuke Festival. Paul Lewis. Bowhouse by St Monins. Four Stars by Keith Bruce. East Nuke Festival. Paul Lewis. Bowhouse by St Monin's Fife, Keith Bruce, four stars. The Fife Coast weather had taken a turn for the worst by the time the masked and socially distanced audience for the final live recital of this year's East Nuke Festival emerged from the Bowhouse to be greeted by the Dick Lee trio playing Duke Ellington's Caravan. Lee on soprano saxophone, trombonist Chris Grieve and Phil Adams on banjo had enjoyed a sunnier pitch in East Pier at St Monin's at lunchtime when the festival's band in a van response to the restrictions of the pandemic explored the heritage of jazz from Fats Waller to Charlie Parker with a stylistic verve that defied the compact lineup. The star name in the Bowhouse programme making his debut at the festival was pianist Paul Lewis, whose appearance on Saturday night and Sunday afternoon attracted as many ticket buyers as the festival was permitted to accommodate. Working with the lack of an interval and a straight-through recital programme, Lewis delivered two contrasting experiences in an atmosphere that was very different from the venue in previous years. While it had often been remarked how well the large agricultural shed adapts to different chamber music, there was no denying that it is a different place with fewer bodies to soften the acoustic and the stage set lower in the middle of one of the longer walls. Lewis worked with these limitations for a performance of Mussorgsky's picture at an exhibition that took no prisoners. It was the climax of a programme that began with Mozart's Sonata in A, K331, that was beautifully shaped but suffered from the resonance of the building, and included five preludes of Scriabin, 
from which the pianist lodged straight into the opening promenade of the Mussorgsky. There were some delicate moments to be heard in Lucy's pictures, but it will remain in the memory for the astonishing speed of the ballet of the unhatched chicks, and the Limoges market sections, and the pedal to the metal power of the hut of Baba Yaga, and great gates of Kiev finish. Sunday afternoon's recital was a very different affair, with a gentler Lewis and audience ears perhaps more attuned to the environment, beginning with the quite uncharacteristic Mozart of the Adagio in B minor. It featured five of Mendelssohn's songs without words, before Schubert's mighty sonata in B, the composer at his most exuberant. The pianist added a generous encore of Schubert's less boisterous Allegretto in C minor, Perhaps a reminder that the lives of all three of these composers were cut tragically short. By Keith Bruce, Herald Scotland, recorded on Friday 9th of July 2021. Arts and Entertainments. Live Review, Opera, Falstaff, Glasgow, Five Stars. By Keith Bruce. Opera, Falstaff, 40 Eddington Street, Glasgow. Keith Bruce, Five Stars. It may be performed in a tent in the car park of Scottish Opera's production centre by the canal, but there is nothing skimpy about Sir David McVicker's new staging of Verdi's Falstaff, a co-production with Santa Fe Opera and destined to be seen indoors at Edinburgh's Festival Theatre as part of August's EIF programme. Crucially, it is a towering performance in the title role from Roland Wood. I have never heard him sing better. And like all Scottish opera goers, I've heard the popular baritone lots. He also brings to the fat night a carefully thought through amoral hypocrisy in a man secretly rather disappointed in himself. It's a lot like the late Oliver Reed, but extant public figure examples are available. Wood is far from the only star on stage, however, with Philip Rhodes and equally ambiguous Ford, Elizabeth Llewellyn, making a very welcome return to this space as his wife, and Louise Winter, a characterful mistress quickly. Alistair Miles and Jamie McDougall are a great double act as Bardolph and Pistol, as are tenor Elgin Clear Thomas, and soprano Gemma Summerfield as the young lovers, the latter in particularly glorious voice. McVicker has placed his Shakespearean realisation of Verdi's adaptation on a symmetrical, multi-level timber pagoda, the apes London semi-outdoor globe, taking full advantage of the natural greenery behind, including a splashy allusion to that canal. His set is busily peopled from the start, when Falstaff's overpopulated bed is pushed on from upstage and there is activity in all corners of it throughout, with wordless actors as washerwomen and gardeners. The live playing of the orchestra of Scottish opera may be piped in from their space next door, with only conductor Stuart Stratford visible to the socially distanced audience, but the detail and balance of the instruments with the voices, brackets, mic'd up, close brackets, is exemplary, not excepting the chorus, placed on either side of the stage. For all its elements of farce and melodrama and its unequivocal success as broad pantomimic entertainment, this is a deeply thoughtful and highly literate Falstaff. Its delights run from Sally Swanson's wordless encapsulation of the character of Doll Tearsheet, brackets borrowed from Henry IV, Part Two, close brackets, in the opening scene, to the depiction of the Virgin Queen, Don Quixote, and a plague mask physician in the costumes of the masqueraders in Windsor Park in the spectacular finale. The mesmerising choreography of that is a theatrical fugue, 
to match the elan with which the cast pull off the musical one that ends the score by Keith Bruce. The Herald, Friday the 9th of July 2021. News. Industries at Grangemouth to capture and store 1 million tonnes of carbon by 2027. This article is by David Ball. Scotland's biggest polluting companies have drawn up plans to cut carbon from their operations by signing up to the country's first carbon capture and storage project. Ineos and Petroenis have joined the ACORN project by signing a Memorandum of Understanding, MOU, for their operations at Grangemouth, leading the way for 1 million tonnes of CO2 to be captured and stored from the industrial hub a year by 2027. A greater volume of carbon could be captured in future years. Carbon capture and storage has received criticism over it being unproven at preventing 100% of carbon from escaping into the atmosphere, while environmental campaigners have labelled it a licence to continue extracting fossil fuels. But the Scottish Government has placed carbon capture as a central part of plans to become net zero by 2045. Earlier this year, insiders told the Herald that discussions had been held between Grangemouth Operations and Acorn Project officials in North East Scotland. The Acorn Project is currently in the front-end engineering and design phase of development and is planned to be operational by the mid-2020s, with the potential of achieving more than half of the 10 MT per year of CO2 storage targeted by the UK's government's 10-point plan for a green industrial revolution by 2030. Andrew Gardner, chairman of Ineos Grangemouth, said Ineos and Petroenis at Grangemouth recognise the importance of reducing greenhouse gas emissions from our industrial processes. As one of Scotland's largest manufacturers and employers, we acknowledge that we are operating a CO2-intensive industry and we have a significant role to play in helping Scotland reach its net carbon zero target by 2045. We have already made significant reductions since taking ownership of the site and we are delighted to be taking this further by supporting the ACORN CCS Scottish Cluster bid. Once operational, the carbon capture and storage system will provide an essential route to permanently and safely capture and store CO2 emissions for large industrial emitters throughout Scotland with significant positive impact for climate change and the country. Nick Cooper, CEO of Storega, the lead developer of the ACORN project, added The ACORN project partners Storega, Shell and Harbour Energy are delighted that Ineos and Petroenis have entered into an MOU with ACORN, which is a really significant step in managing Scotland's industrial emissions. The ACORN CCS and hydrogen project is advanced, highly scalable and has clear visibility of a large CO2 customer base. ACORN provides critical carbon reduction infrastructure to the growing Scottish cluster of emitters and to the wider UK. This article is by David Ball. The Herald, Friday the 9th of July 2021. News. Renewables giant to bid for wind farm acreage in Scott Wind Round. This article is by Mark Williamson. Renewable energy giant Orsted has announced plans to develop big floating wind farms off Scotland in a move that underlines the appeal of the country to international investors. 
The Danish company said it plans to bid for offshore acreage in the Scotland licensing round, which has generated huge interest already. A range of energy sector heavyweights, including BP and Scottish hydroelectric owner SSE, have said they plan to participate in the landmark round. Launched by Crown Estate Scotland in June last year, Scotland is the first offshore wind leasing round to cover acreage off the country for a decade. When the round was launched, Crown Estate Scotland held out the prospect it could pave the way to around 10 new commercial wind farms being developed off Scotland and helped to unlock £8 billion of investment. Orsted's decision to enter the fray will increase confidence that the round will be a big success in financial terms and help Scotland to realise the full potential of offshore renewable energy. The head of the company's UK business, Duncan Clark, said the Scotland leasing round is a crucial step in the Scottish Government's plan to deliver up to 11 gigawatts of offshore wind capacity by 2030 and will be pivotal to a truly green recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic. Wind farm developments off Scotland have yet to provide the boost expected to the supply chain and the labour market in the country. All bar one of these completed to date features turbines fixed to the seabed. However, experts have suggested that Scotland could become a world leader in the emerging floating wind farm market. Norwegian giant Equinor developed what is billed as the world's first floating wind farm off Scotland in the form of the high wind development east of Peterhead. Orsted said it is set to apply for seabed leases in sites which lend themselves to the deployment of large-scale floating wind technology in the Scotland round. Orsted said it had made a strategic decision to pursue floating wind opportunities and wanted to drive the commercialisation of the technology. The company is bidding with Falk Renewables and Blue Float Energy. It said these have unique hands-on experience in floating wind projects and a strong local presence in Scotland. Falk has developed a number of onshore wind farms in Scotland. Richard Dibley, Managing Director of Falk Renewables UK, said the company had more than 15 years of experience working in Scotland to develop projects which share their economic benefit as widely as possible with local people. He added, we are excited about the opportunities this partnership will offer Scottish communities and the supply chain. Bluefoot Energy has worked on offshore wind farm developments around the world. The partnership approach could help firms to persuade Crown Estate Scotland that their plans will deliver wider benefits. The organisation has required applicants to submit a supply chain development statement outlining how they plan to engage with and utilise supply chains to successfully develop their projects. SSE is working with Japanese industrial giant Marubeni and the Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners investment firm. BP said in May that it was planning to participate in Scotland with Germany's Energy Baden-Württemberg ENBW. BP made a successful bid with ENBW for leases covering an area between the Isle of Man and Liverpool in the latest UK round. The partners agreed to pay the Crown Estate around £1.8 billion in fees over the first four years in total, with the prospect of them investing much more if they decide to develop any wind farms. Crown Estate Scotland extended the Scotland round following the strong response to the UK round. The deadline for Scotland applications is July the 16th. Orsted has interests in 12 wind farms off England 
and in five onshore wind farm projects in Scotland. The company developed out the Dong Energy oil and gas business. Grangemouth refinery owner Ineos bought Dong Energy's North Sea business in a £1 billion deal in 2017. This article is by Mark Williamson. From the Herald Scotland, Monday the 12th of July 2021, from the sports section. Rangers, five talking points as Stephen Gerrard's side prepare for Arsenal clash. By Christopher Jack, senior sports writer. Rangers suffered their first defeat of pre-season on Saturday as Stephen Gerrard's side lost to Tranmere. Kieran Morris got the only goal of the game with a fine strike from the edge of the area to give Mickey Malins Rover a narrow victory. It was a game that Rangers should have won, though, as a series of chances were squandered and Gerrard was frustrated with a below-par performance at Prenton Park. The champions are back in action when they host Arsenal next weekend. Here are five talking points ahead of the visit of the Gunners. Don't read too much into the result. Anyone who overreacts to a performance or a scoreline at this stage of the season really should know better by now. These games are about fitness and sharpness and the, the defeat. However, however undeserved it was on the day, is ultimately meaningless for Rangers. Just like the win over Partick Thistle seven days ago, there is no need to analyse the action too deeply. In terms of getting players back up to speed, it was job done at Penton Park. Gerard again utilised the majority of his squad as he made sweeping changes at the break and while there was obvious frustration at the result, this isn't the time for supporters to start pressing the panic button. Gerard calls it right. There were few occasions during his first three years at Ibrox where it was hard to disagree with how Gerard assessed 90 minutes and that was the case here. He was firm but fair in his post-match remarks. The goal we conceded is embarrassing from, from our level and how we were last year, Gerard told Rangers TV. People jumping out of the way of tackles, people being soft and weak. I can't tolerate that. As we move along, we will get stronger, we will get better and it will be a better level of performance. It is quite frustrating to lose the game but... Big picture, the result is not important at the moment, but the takeaway is where we have to improve, certainly in the final third. The Ibrox boss was clearly irked by the plethora of chances that the Rangers spurned, and he will surely emphasise that point once again in the coming days after his side lost a game that they should have won comfortably. But he would strike right the right balance between going over the top in terms of criticism and being pointed enough to let his players know that he expects better of them going forward. Lunchroom settles in quickly. When it comes to positives to take from the trip to Merseyside, the debut showing from John Lundstrom certainly falls into that category for Rangers. The midfielder may only have had 45 minutes on the park, but it was, it was an assured outing as supporters got their first look at the former Sheffield United star. Lundstrom will have a key part to play this term, and this was a solid start as he looks to settle in and get up to speed as quickly as possible at Ibrox. I thought for large parts of the first half John cruised it, Gerard said. 
You can see what he's going to give us. I think he tired a little bit. He has been pushed out really hard this week. He definitely went into the game tired, but you can see his quality. He has presence on the pitch. He's only going to get better and better. He was a positive for me today. Arsenal will be the most indicative. The approach from Gerrard has been clear during Rangers' first two outings against Thistle and Tranmere, and the majority of his squad now have game time under their belts. There are still some, such as Borna Barisic, Glenn Camera, Scott Arfield, Alfredo Morelos, and new recruit Fashion Sakala that have yet to feature, and the coming loops will give them a chance to step up their preparations for the big kickoff. The visit of Arsenal will be a significant rise in challenge for Rangers. Gerard has already laid down the gauntlet to his players ahead of the meeting with Mikel Arteta's side. I think the first two weeks is all about minutes, about getting people through it, about getting the volume into the legs, Gerard says. I think now, from Monday morning, we will have a look at this game and this is about people impressing and training to play. Now I'm going to pick teams for 60 minutes, so if you're not performing now then we can't carry anyone. The season is so important as we move on. People need to impress now and play well, otherwise they're not going to get many minutes. Squad men need to catch the eye. Given the names that have been missing from Gerard's ranks so far this summer, those that are involved just now really need to make the most of it and grab their opportunities. It is hard to see the likes of George Edmondson, Jordan Jones or Brandon Barker forcing their way into Gerrard's starting lineup, though, and summer exits appear on the cards. These fixtures may not give them the chance to secure a long-term future at Ibrox, but they do provide a platform for them to impress a potential suitor and ensure they are in shape ahead of a likely move before the close of business. And that piece was by Christopher Jack. From the Herald Scotland, Monday the 12th of July 2021, from the sports section. So far so good from Angie Postelicoglu, but Celtic need to strengthen on and off the park. By Matthew Lindsay, Chief Football Writer. It is still very early days for Angie Postelicoglu at Celtic. The Greek-Australian coach only arrived in Scotland last month and you can count the number of training sessions he has had with these new players on the fingers of two hands. But early impressions are certainly favourable. The former Brisbane Roar, Melbourne Victory, Australia and Yokohama F Marino's manager spoke confidently and calmly as his official unveiling at Parkhead, which suggested he will be able to deal with the scrutiny and pressure he will be under in Glasgow. His men have also won their opening two pre-season friendlies. They came from behind to reach Sheffield Wednesday 3-1 at Dragon Park in Newport in Wales last Wednesday and then defeated Charlton Athletic 2-1 on Saturday at the same venue. A raft of kids, the majority of whom will get nowhere near the Celtic side when when the 2021-22 campaign gets underway in earnest, features in the first of those runouts due to the limited work the more established squad members had done. But Nia Beaton, Callum McGregor, Greg Taylor and David Turnbull joined Albin Ajete, Scott Bain, Vassilis Barkas, Odson Edward, 
Ismaila Soro and Stephen Walsh on the park at the weekend and Celtic performed well. They worked hard and in out of possession, moved the ball quickly, created several scoring chances and netted two good goals. Postalicoglu came to this country with a reputation for playing high intensity attacking football and you could see why in the first half the meeting with Charlton down in Gwent. The 55-year-old was a left-field choice to replace Neil Lennon, and no mistake. However, he is experienced, has worked at a high level for a long time and is ambitious. He is more than capable of justifying his appointment in the coming months. For a manager to succeed at any club, though, he needs more, much more, than a good rapport with his charges and tacticalness. He requires the right infrastructure around him, and a number of quality footballers in every position in order to flourish. Postecoglou doesn't have them at the moment. A major rebuild is required at Celtic. Several prominent players, including Christopher Ayer, Ryan Christie and Austin Edward, are poised to depart before the transfer window closes at the end of August. Those who have outstayed their welcome need to be moved on. Replacements must be found. Postecoglou stressed last week that multiple targets have been identified in key areas that he wants to strengthen and emphasise he is working around the clock to bring in more new signings. But who exactly is overseeing that vital process? Head of Football Operations Nicky Hammond left his role back in March. Speculation that the Director of Football position will be created has been rife in these past three and a half months. A number of high-profile names have been linked with the vacancy, but none of them have materialised. Hammond had a recruitment team underneath him, and they have been continuing with their duties behind the scenes. Still, it is incredible that nobody has been brought, up, brought in to head up the operation, given the scale, importance and urgency of the overhaul that must be carried out. New Chief Executive Dominic Mackay only started at Parkhead in mid-April, and only assumed full control at the start of this month, following the departure of Peter Lowell. It makes sense for the former Scottish Rugby Chief Operating Officer to have a say in who takes over from Hammond. He will, after all, be working closely with him going forward. But Celtic face Mitchell Thailand of Denmark, who drew with Atlanta away and Liverpool at home in the Champions League group stages last term, in their opening European qualifier a week tomorrow. Who will play at the right back in the future? Who will play at centre half? Who will play in the wing? There are limited options. Posty Coglu should not be in a position where he is struggling to fill positions adequately, going into a massive game on which so much is riding against such dangerous opponents. The Celtic hierarchy knew they were likely to lose Ayer, Christie, Edward and others this summer a long time ago. They were well aware they would be short of cover in several areas. Yes, they could have to let the manager bring in his own guys, but more could and should have been done earlier. Rangers, who were the outstanding team in Scotland by some distance last season and once again excelled in Europe, signed Jack Simpson and Scott Wright in January and have already landed John Lundstrom, Niamdi Olfobor and Fashion Sakala this summer thanks to the efforts of the sporting director Ross Wilson and his staff.
That is how to prepare properly for a new campaign. Posty Coglu has inherited his first team coaches, John Kennedy and Gavin Strachan from Lennon, and has been pleased with how quickly they have embraced the changes he has introduced. But he has spoken of the requirement to bolster elsewhere. He is not wrong. Mackay must provide his manager with the necessary backup that he needs and put, put, put in place a sort of dynamic and modern structure, which is long overdue at such a major club if the new incumbent of the Parkhead dugout is to enjoy success at Celtic. And that piece was by Matthew Lindsay. Herald Scotland recorded on Monday 12th of July 2021. Arts and Entertainments. Diary of a Breakup. Rosemary Goring reviews Anne Thoreau's Hurtfilled Memoir. By Rosemary Goring, columnist. The Year of the End. Anne Thoreau. Icon, £12.99. Review by Rosemary Goring. In an interview long after he and his first wife, Anne, broke up, Paul Theroux reflected that writers choose their wives. They choose them for certain purposes. They need a specific kind of woman. Protective and self-sacrificing types. What they want is a secretary, mother, a guardian of the gate. Anne Theroux, as this memoir reveals, was not suited to that submissive and self-negating brief. The pair met in 1967 when she was working as a broadcaster with VSO in Kenya and he was teaching in Uganda. Soon she became pregnant. That she gave up her job to marry him suggests the sort of devotion Paul required. Yet Anne's account of the year in which their 22-year marriage finally fizzled out shows otherwise. Initially so well suited in intellect, interest and affection, ultimately they could not reconcile their divergent needs and ambitions. The Year of the End is subtitled A Memoir of Marriage, Truth and Fiction and like a conscientious student answering an exam question, point by point, it lives up to its description. Based on a diary Anne Theroux kept throughout 1990, I forced myself to write something on every page though it did not come easily to me, as you can no doubt tell. It was amplified a few years later with fuller recollections than the often drab and flat observations of the diary. Thereafter the manuscript sat in a drawer for decades. You might wonder why she has now published it, after reading what cannot fail to be regarded as a work of revenge. Doubtless Anne Theroux's intention was to set the record straight, rather than twist the knife. She had, after all, been long-suffering, tolerant and accepting of Paul Theroux's infidelities from early in their marriage. Arguably even worse, she had been humiliated by his depiction of her and his fiction. In 1989 he published My Secret History, in which Jenny Parent, the narrator's wife, was recognisable as Anne. She's drawn as shrewish and humourless, and the husband's passionate affair is mercilessly described. Anne writes that the book was a betrayal. When she told Thoreau how it made her feel, he replied by telling her he was seeing someone. He tried to reassure her that this liaison was unimportant, and his lover, who would later become his second wife, was well aware of where she stood. I told her that this had happened before, and that when I had to choose, I chose you. In January 1990, as the couple brace themselves for the split, they go out to dinner to reminisce. Champagne is drunk, the final fizz of their relationship. The next day, January 18, Anne records, Paul left today at 8am, the beginning of a six-month separation. I spent a futile, miserable day drinking, smoking a joint, brackets, I even burnt the carpet, close brackets, and hoping I can pull myself together tomorrow. During that separation, unbeknownst to her, Paul lived with his girlfriend in Honolulu in his Cape Cod house. 
What follows is an account of how Anne negotiated the heartbreak that ensued. Of all the scores settled, perhaps the biggest is with Thoreau's future wife. At various points, Anne recounts conversations in which Paul rebutiated her. I do know somebody of that name, but not very well. She isn't important. There are moments in this confessional, unvarnished description of a relationship sliding into the abyss when the reader feels voyeuristic. It's not clear what is to be gained from revealing private scenes of screaming hurt and rage, of bedroom intimacies and hopeless yearning. Whatever the motive behind publication, Anne does not seem like a vindictive woman. She is as unflinchingly hard and honest about herself as about Paul. That the book is dedicated to their sons Marcel and Louis, both now well known in their own right, would suggest it was not written in bitterness but in the hope of enlightenment or explication. Possibly, indeed, as a guide to others in a similar situation. Later, Anne put her experience to good use. After a long career with the BBC, she became a relationship counsellor. The language of that profession is evident here. When, as a young wife, she responded to Paul's earliest flings by having one of her own, she writes, perhaps the affair indicated a dangerous flaw in her relationship, a weakness in the marital bedrocks of loyalty and commitment. Or perhaps it was my way of screaming, this is what it feels like. Is this what you really want? Needless to say, Paul was unforgiving. Much of this memoir is pedestrian, recounting films viewed, holidays abroad, or Anne's interviews with writers such as Barbara Cartland and Kingsley Amos. These workaday details add to the impression of a turbulent, distressing year, but she would be the first to admit that she cannot compete with Paul as a writer. It is only in the portrait of a fractured marriage and reflections on being married to an artist that the page comes alive. I don't know what kind of woman is best suited to be the wife of an artist, she reflects, before suggesting there is the equally talented pairing such as Diego and Frida Kahlo, and then there is the master and the handmaid, into which category she fell, albeit reluctantly. I left a lot to be desired as a handmaid, being too opinionated and argumentative, too hopeful that I had something to offer the world myself, too intent on finding my own satisfactions. It was Paul Thoreau's best friend V.S. Naipaul, who embodied the heartlessness of a certain kind of author. Naipaul's credo was uncompromising, art is long and life is short, and it made Anne shiver. It was a profound conviction that permeated everything he did and said. It was a dangerous belief. It could be used as an excuse to treat people badly. It was a belief I feared Paul shared. By Christmas 1990 and the end of the diary, it was obvious that the marriage was beyond repair. In the years to come, Anne found happiness elsewhere, as did Paul. What this book encapsulates, however clumsily, is a wife's sorrowful admission in the truth of most broken relationships that love died reluctantly by a thousand cuts. By Rosemary Goring. The Herald, Monday the 12th of July 2021. News. SNP government held hundreds of secret lobbying meetings in 2020. This article is by Karen Goodwin and Joshua Martin. Hundreds of meetings between Scottish ministers and multinationals, wealthy individuals and other influential organisations were left off the lobbying register in 2020 due to loopholes in legislation, the ferrets can reveal. Analysis of Scottish Government ministers' engagements in 2020 shows that meetings potentially of key public interest were not in the register including those between ministers and companies awarded multi-million pound UK and Scottish contracts to supply the NHS in the run-up to COVID-19. As these meetings took place by phone, they did not fall under regulated lobbying rules, an exemption which means they don't need to appear on the lobbying register. Others in this category included meetings between ministers 
and the billionaire steel tycoon behind GFG Alliance, Sanjeev Gupta. Research also showed Scottish ministers had telephone meetings regularly with Scotland's richest men, including billionaires Sir Ian Wood and Sir Tom Hunter, about a wide range of topics from business to COVID-19 and renewables, and in the case of Hunter, social renewal, education and transport. Under the Lobbying Scotland Act 2016, which came into force in 2018, all face-to-face lobbying is regulated. This means all such meetings with elected politicians and civil servants must be registered. Details must be given about the subject and purpose of the meeting, what was discussed, the name of the person lobbying and the organisation. Face-to-face meetings anywhere count at work, a conference, social events, Zoom calls with cameras on or even out with Scotland. Fines of up to £1,000 can be imposed. However, lobbying via phone calls, emails and other communications such as WhatsApp are not included. Meetings do not need to be entered on the register if they were instigated by a minister, even where lobbying might take place, and meetings on constituency business are also exempt. The existence of these meetings is revealed in the diaries of ministers' engagements, which are published monthly. However, these often contain only a couple of words to describe the subject and may not include the name of the individual or of the company. Lobbying organisations told the ferret they were increasingly asked to meet ministers in telephone meetings, which meant even when they instigated the meeting it did not count as regulated lobbying. The Scottish Alliance for Lobbying Transparency, SALT, said the loopholes made a mockery of Scotland's transparency ambitions. It meant the public was denied critical information about public interest meetings, the contents of which could not be interrogated, it added. Top 10 most frequent lobbyists since March 2018, based on lobbying register entries for ministers and special advisers only. They include the NFU Scotland, CBI, Scottish Trades Union Congress, British Retail Consortium, WWF UK, University and College Union, Message Matters, Prospect, the Scottish Council for Development and Industry, Scottish Salmon Producers Organisation. Meetings found by the ferret on ministers' engagements but not on the lobbying register include those between ministers and high-profile potential investors about Bifab, the company which had two steel fabrication yards in Fife and the Isle of Lewis. The firm collapsed last year after failing to secure any new contracts. Ministers' engagement documents also showed phone meetings between Fergus Ewing, former Cabinet Secretary for the Rural Economy, and billionaire steel magnate Sanjeev Gupta, Chairman and Finance Director of Troubled Metals Manufacturer Liberty Steel. These were not in the register, and so no detail about their content was provided. Our research also found that engagements with big business, including energy companies and renewables chasing Scotland's booming renewables sector, dominated the diaries of several ministers. No wrongdoing by any of the companies highlighted was found in the ferret's research. However, thousands of meetings were logged where lobbying could have taken place. Research found over 150 meetings in February 2020 with external unelected individuals. In both June and November 2020, ministers had about 200 meetings with potential for lobbying, but where it was not possible to tell what was discussed. NHS Supply A series of calls between 
then Minister for Trade, Investment and Innovation Ivan McKee and NHS suppliers were recorded in the ministerial diaries from the 20th to the 31st of March 2020. McKee had a call with engineering and defence giant Babcock just over two weeks before it was reported the company had been awarded a cabinet office contract to manufacture 10,000 ventilators. In the end, the agreement was not upheld. At the time, the Scottish Government highlighted manufacturing facilities in Kelso, Livingston and Glenrothes, belonging to engineering firms Plexus and Raytheon UK, would be involved in Babcock's supply chain. In the announcement at the time, McKee expressed his pride in the deal and said that Plexus and Raytheon UK have been supported by Scottish Enterprise to facilitate their involvement in vital efforts to increase capacity for the NHS and the Scottish Government. Scottish Enterprise were on hand to provide any operational support they require, he added. A spokesman for Babcock said the Scottish Government had requested the meeting, adding due to rapid changes in the requirement for ventilators, no formal order was placed by the UK Government before the programme was wound down. Three meetings were also held with Plexus in late March before a £12.8 million UK Government contract for producing ventilators for the NHS from their Kelso facility was announced on the 2nd of April. McKee also spoke by phone to Viar Medical in late March. The company later won a contract for ventilators with NHS National Services Scotland worth £526,675, published on the 3rd of June. Other meetings were held between McKee and Draeger in March, which was awarded six UK contracts for ventilators in 2020, collectively worth £491 million, and PA Consulting reportedly paid £1.5 million by the UK government to manage COVID-19 communications. Of the companies highlighted, only Babcock responded to requests for comment. Meetings with business giants. The ferret also looked at meetings in October and November 2020, the period following the collapse of Bifabs, Fife and Lewis Fabrication Yards. As well as a further meeting with owners and unions, Hislop held a phone call on the 22nd of October with former Rangers Football Club chairman and entrepreneur Sir David Murray about Bifab. A spokesman from Charlotte Street Partners, which represents Murray, said the meeting was at Hislop's request for advice and was not lobbying. The Scottish Government is currently considering the traffic impact of Murray's proposed Edinburgh International Business Gateway, a development near the city's airport. It recently emerged the Scottish Government rejected a rescue deal made by the businessman when the Tata Steel, Dizel and Clybridge Steelworks was on the verge of collapse in late 2015. At the time, the Scottish Government held a series of meetings with Murray, but instead struck a deal with Sanjeev Gupta's Liberty Steel, a subsidiary of his GFG Alliance Group. That business was plunged into crisis in March 2021, following the collapse of major investor Greensill Capital. Former Cabinet Secretary for Rural Economy and Tourism, Fergus Ewing, was the key contact for steel billionaire Gupta, holding regular meetings, including an unminuted private dinner with a controversial banker at the heart of the Conservative lobbying scandal Lex Greensill and Gupta back in 2017. Ministers' engagements for 2020 list three phone calls with Gupta and Ewing, not on the lobbying register. A GFG Alliance spokesperson said GFG is a significant employer and investor in the UK 
and as part of its normal course of doing business, we engage with a range of stakeholders, including politicians, on a number of topics that relate to our businesses. We have strong links with the Scottish and Welsh governments because of the plants and jobs in Scotland and Wales. Other examples of unlogged lobbying opportunities in November 2020 include a meeting held by Minister Kate Forbes with UK Hospitality Scotland Executive Director Willie MacLeod, who later welcomed a £104 million government support package for tourism and hospitality businesses. Both Forbes and fellow Minister Fergus Ewing also met a number of pub owners that month. The lobbyist behind Wilson MacLeod Consulting also has many entries on the lobbying register, including one in the same month with Ewing, but the meeting with Forbes does not appear. Environmental concerns. The ferret also analysed six months of engagements for Energy Minister Paul Wheelhouse, who had dozens of meetings across telephone and video with powerful energy companies, including Red Rock Power, GE Renewables, EDF, Rise Hydrogen, Brookfield Renewables, The Green Investment Group and Oval. Several others were held with industry bodies, including Oil and Gas UK. The Scottish Government is committed to a just transition from fossil fuels to meet net zero carbon targets by 2045. In December, its vision for Scotland to become a leading hydrogen nation was published and warmly welcomed by Oil and Gas UK, whose representatives met with the Minister. Over the six months, only one meeting with a campaign group was noted, Aaron Ferry Action Group. Though he had no dire engagements with environmentalists, the lobbying register does record one fringe event with Friends of the Earth and another with Greenpeace. Meanwhile, environmental campaigners such as Friends of the Earth have raised deep concerns about the large-scale plans to develop hydrogen. A Scottish Government spokesperson said that in the previous parliamentary term, the Energy Minister naturally met predominantly with energy stakeholders, with the Environment Secretary and Natural Environment Minister meeting with many environmental stakeholders over the same period. In May, it created new Net Zero Secretary and Just Transition Minister roles, which it said reflect our ongoing cross-government commitment to engaging with and working with every corner of society on our continuing journey to net zero. Other ministers with regular private sector meetings include Ewing, who regularly spoke to leading fish farming producers. In November, he spoke with Backafrost and Maui, but had no engagements with environmental groups calling for increased regulation. Hamish MacDonald, Strategic Engagement Director of the Scottish Salmon Producers Organisation, said ministers appreciate having regular contact with Scotland's salmon producers, which is unsurprising, given the enormous value our producers generate for rural Scotland. But Richard Dixon, Chief Executive of Friends of the Earth Scotland, said, From energy giants to fish farming companies, big business doesn't seem to have much trouble getting a meeting with ministers. Civil society groups, on the other hand, rarely feature in ministers' diaries. He said the loopholes in the register allowed big companies and lobbyists to bend the ear of decision makers without the details being reported. The lack of transparency on lobbying undermines democracy. Susanna Fitzgerald, Network Coordinator at Transparency International UK, said the lobbying register doesn't yet live up to its promise. She added, the loopholes are glaring, ensuring that decisions are made in the public interest rather than for those with the deepest pockets 
is the responsibility of all policymakers. The ferret also found key individuals with a variety of roles had noteworthy access to ministers. These included Sandy Bigby, Chief Executive of Scottish Financial Enterprise, SFE, the representative body for Scotland's financial services industry, who had 22 meetings with a wide range of ministers last year, at least 17 of which were telephone discussions. As well as representing one of Scotland's biggest industry sectors, Begbie was last year tasked with recommending how Scottish Government's Youth Guarantee, which promises every young person in Scotland between the ages of 16 and 24 either a job, an apprenticeship, studying or volunteering placement, should work in practice. Some of the meeting titles mentioned the Youth Guarantee, some did not or used his SFE job title. A spokesperson for SFE said, Developing and implementing the guarantee is in the clear interests of young people and the wider economy and is, by definition, not lobbying. Engagement we undertake on behalf of the financial services sector and all those employed in it in our role as a representative body is registered transparently in line with the legislation. Sir Tom Hunter, the billionaire businessman and philanthropist who in June urged the Scottish Government to let business lead the COVID-19 recovery, had 13 meetings by telephone with seven Scottish ministers between April and December last year. Hunter manages his interests through his investment operation West Coast Capital, whose interests include property and analytics for the energy industry. The entrepreneur behind Sports Division also runs the Tom Hunter Foundation. Topics of the meetings took in a wide portfolio from education to social justice and the digital economy. A spokesperson for Sir Tom Hunter commented, These meetings were predominantly around the Hunter Foundation and are co-investments with government for the common good. Fellow billionaire Sir Ian Wood, who chairs Opportunity North East, ONE, a major private sector project working towards economic diversification and renewal in North East Scotland, met ministers seven times, mostly by phone. Wood, who is the fourth richest man in Scotland, according to the Sunday Times Rich List, met three different ministers on behalf of one to discuss a wide range of issues from green recovery to life sciences. A spokesperson for one stressed it was a not-for-profit company working in partnership between private and public sectors. They added, maintaining positive and constructive relationships between industry and government will be particularly important as we embark upon economic recovery and the strong emergence of energy transition activities alongside oil and gas. Likewise, Benny Higgins, Strategic Advisor to the First Minister on the development of the Scottish National Investment Bank and Chair of the Scottish Government's Advisory Group on Economic Recovery, had 11 meetings with ministers including Sturgeon, Hislop and Cunningham last year, with titles including COVID-19, the economy and the environment. Again, all except two of these were over the phone. Higgins is also the executive chairman of the Buclu Estates, chair of a number of financial firms such as Forster Chase, and on the boards of a clutch of arts organisations including the National Galleries of Scotland. He told the ferret, I fully support transparency around engagement with government ministers and civil servants. I think it is also important that people with business and civic experience are encouraged to engage with decision makers to help make a contribution to civic life. The STUC also had regular access to numerous ministers, as well as a substantial record on the lobbying register. Dave Moxham, STUC Deputy General Secretary, said the Trade Union Congress 
which represents half a million members, was proud of both. Everyone knows what we want to do, and so we go to government and civil servants to push for change, he added. We report on it at our meetings and conferences, publish papers and shout about it. We're not trying to hide anything we are doing. But we don't always know what is going on between government and the private sector, and it's clear the government listens to big businesses very closely. Former Labour MSP Neil Findlay, whose private member's bill resulted in the current lobbying legislation, insisted transparency was key. The reality is the Scottish Government took over my bill and watered it down, leaving loophole after loophole to be exploited by powerful, vested interests, he added. Campaigner James Mackenzie, whose lobbying work includes that on the circular economy, rewilding and inshore fisheries, said the Act was a sideshow in its current form. He added, if we really want to know what's going on behind ministers' closed doors, then all meetings with ministers or special advisers will have to be minuted, and those minutes should be published automatically a few weeks later, with redactions only in line with the existing exemptions of freedom of information legislation. A Scottish Government spokesperson said the Scottish Government is committed to transparency and all ministerial engagements are recorded and published, including meetings held via phone calls. It is the responsibility of those who lobby to consider whether any engagement they have with lobbies should be registered. If there is any uncertainty concerning the need to register, definitive guidance should be sought directly from a Scottish Parliament lobbying register team. This article is by Karen Goodwin and Joshua Martin. Recorded from the Herald on the 13th of July 2021. Celtic launch new 2021-2022 Adidas kits ahead of new season with pre-orders available. By Mark Hendry. Celtic have launched their new home kit for season 2021-2022. The Hoops released their Adidas strip with a flash of video narrated by midfielder Callum McGregor. Images were leaked on social media last week but the club were pleased to officially show off their new kits this morning, describing them as a fresh look for a fresh start. The Hoops made the kits available for pre-order on celticfc.net forward slash store, and official, official Celtic stores, JD Sport and Store are online, but they won't officially be made purchasable until August 5th. Fans can get their hands on the new jerseys for £65, with adult shorts at £35 and socks for 15 a short statement read, it's a fresh look for a fresh start as the Celts look towards an exciting season ahead wearing the green and white of Glasgow. With unbroken hoops and an unbroken history, our city, our colours, is woven into the back neck of the jersey, which features the iconic three stripes on the shoulders, with the Celtic crest displayed proudly on the chest. Matching white shorts and socks with the three green three stripes complete this classic look for the season ahead. Made to keep you comfortable, the latest kit combines soft fabric and moisture-wicking aero-ready. The Adidas technology guarantees to keep you cool under pressure. The future is our focus, no matter where the game may take us. That article was by Mark Hendry. Recorded from The Herald on the 13th of July 2021. From the sports section, Olympics, everything you need to know about the judo scoring system. By Sophie Parsons. We are all watching more sport this summer, which includes matches, races and tournaments we don't usually see on TV. With lots of British hopefuls going for gold in the Olympic judo tournament, it might be useful to get our heads around the scoring system so we know exactly what is going on. Judo was founded in Japan in 1882, 
so this year's Olympics will see the sport return to its roots. As the athletes prepare to go for gold, here's everything you need to know about the judo scoring system. How are the scores awarded in a judo match? There are three different points you can be awarded during a judo match. An ippon is a full point, a waza-ari is a half point, and a yuko is the smallest point you can receive. The goal of the match is to achieve an ippon, and when this happens, the match ends. How can you win an ippon? An ippon can be achieved through various methods. A throw which results in one of the competitors being thrown and landed fully on their back with considerable force. This is nicknamed the perfect throw in judo. Holding your opponent down for 25 seconds. If an opponent gives up or is disqualified. Holding your opponent in a stranglehold. This is otherwise known as choking your opponent until they tap to give up or pass out. Applying an arm lock to an opponent's elbow joint until they either give up or the arm becomes dislocated. Winning two wazi-ari points. How can you win a wazi-ari? Wazi-aris can be awarded through a throw which results in your opponent being thrown but only landing partly on their back rather than fully, or a throw which is less force than required for an ippon. Holding your opponent for 20 seconds, hold your opponent violating the rules three times. How can you win a yuko? Yukos are awarded when a throw is only partially successful, you hold your opponent down for 15 to 20 seconds. Are matches time constrained? Yes, matches can only last up to 5 minutes for men and 4 minutes for women. If time is up and neither opponent has scored an ippon, the referee awards the win to the person with the highest score, i.e. the person with the most accumulated waza aries and yukos. If the scores are exactly equal by the time the match is over, then it is awarded to whoever has the least number of penalties. If the scores are the same and penalties are the same at the end of the match, it goes to sudden death over time, otherwise known as golden score. In such instances, the first person to score a point is victorious. What is the referee's role in judo? The referee ensures the match takes place safely and fairly, as well as awarding scores and penalties. There are also judges who oversee the referee, ensure their decisions are correct, and assist them where necessary. How many weight categories are there in Olympic judo? There are currently seven weight categories in Olympic judo. For men, these are heavyweight, 100 kilograms plus. Half heavyweight, 90 to 100 kilograms. Middleweight, 81 to 90 kilograms. Half middleweight, 73 to 81 kilograms. Lightweight, 66 to 73 kilograms. Half lightweight, 60 to 66 kilograms. Extra lightweight, less than 60 kilograms. For women, these are heavyweight, 78 kilograms plus. Half heavyweight, 70 to 78 kilograms. Middleweight, 63 to 70 kilograms. Half middleweight, 57 to 63 kilograms. Lightweight, 52 to 57 kilograms. Half lightweight, 48 to 52 kilograms. And extra lightweight, less than 48 kilograms. What dates is the Olympic judo taking place? The judo competitions will take place between July 24th to 31st. That article was by Sophie Parsons. From the Herald Scotland, dated Tuesday 13th July 2021, from the Voices section. Dangerous city bus lane move will cripple traffic and could cost lives. An article by Gary Scott. Imagine you are in charge of the city, a big, brash, sometimes brilliant one. Then imagine that city is trying to bounce back from a pandemic 
that has plunged it into a deep freeze for more than a year. A lockdown that has seen it drained of people and income, drained of its whole point of existence, left a hollow shell of itself. What would your number one priority be? Would it be, oh, I don't know, just a shot in the dark here? But would your priority be to help that city get back on its feet? To bring the people back in? To let it flourish once more? Or would your priority be to make it as difficult as possible for life to return to normal? To actively chase people away? Because that is what Glasgow City Council seem to be doing while we've been looking the other way. If you are one of the few people who are regularly in the town, you'll have noticed the strangest thing. Beside many bus stops, a completely unnecessary and frankly dangerous piece of civil engineering has been imposed on our already strangled roads. If you haven't seen them, I'll try to explain and I'll understand if you don't believe me. Tarmac platforms, the width of a lane of traffic, have been thrown down in front of bus stops on busy roads, such as Bath Street and Hope Street, thereby blocking that lane for traffic. This means our poor bus drivers can no longer stop at the front of the bus stop and will have to swing out of the bus lane and into traffic to stop for passengers. This is guaranteed to cause traffic jams, but worse, it will cause accidents. Cyclists will be knocked off if they are in the driver's blind spots. They could be killed. And then, of course, it will be the bus driver to blame. And it's not just cyclists at risk. Many of these bus lanes are part-time, which mean drivers and motorcyclists are perfectly entitled to use them out of restricted times. Now imagine you are a visiting motorcyclist and don't know the city. It's dark and the rain is streaming off your visor. You're tired and you're trying to find your hotel and you hit one of these monstrosities. You are going down, quite likely head first. You could get up again, but maybe you won't. Landing on your head is never good for your health. And let's hope there's no pedestrians about to be clattered by an out of control 250 kilogram bike. These lane blockers are not even properly built. They are uneven, with the curbs higher than the surface and the last thing older people or those with sight problems need. I don't blame the roads department. I'm sure they are trying their best to keep the city moving. I'm sure they'd rather fix the plague of potholes or, even better, resurface our battered and beaten roads. No, I blame the politicians. I blame them all. No matter which party they represent, they all seem to have swallowed the goody-two-shoes orthodoxy. Car driver equals bad, motorcyclist equals even worse. It's not just Glasgow. This is a problem across Scotland. It looks like the powers that be, those that soak up our council tax, are using the pandemic not to build back better, but to try to reshape, with no discussion, how we live our lives according to their prejudices. The city belongs to us, not those numpties in the city chambers. And it might be nice if somebody asked us before they tried to change it. This article was by Gary Scott. 
And that was this week's The Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.